breaking and entering, drunk and disorderly, law and order. A former prosecutor and a defence lawyer, not your typical pairing. And the result? Conversations about crime and punishment that are guaranteed to get you thinking. Welcome to Justice Matters with Joe Crowley and Lizzie Green, a brand new weekly podcast. Our episodes are available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and YouTube. Check out our Instagram for clips at Justice Matters Pod. Enjoy the episode. This episode contains descriptions of violence, sexual violence, including violence towards children. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Lizzie. Good morning, Joe. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I am well, and uh, our podcast seems to be doing all right out in um, the virtual world. Yes, getting quite a bit of attention, which is great to see. Fantastic to see. And in fact, this week's episode is a suggestion from one of our uh, avid listeners, Jessica Hodge, uh, solicitor. She is passionate about double jeopardy and the case of Carol, Queen against Carol. I love because I also am very um, invested in the Carol case and the subsequent double jeopardy outcomes that we have seen. So you teach law and uh, this is something you cover with the students? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, part of it is the story itself, which is heartbreaking, but also just the legal ramifications that have flowed from this Carol case and we're still seeing them now. They're not mm. resolved yet. So. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Maybe we'll get on to the DNA inquiry right at the end. I don't know. We'll we see. do a little bit. I do think. we? Okay, yeah. good. All right, but why don't we orient the listeners with some facts of this really, really sad facts that begin this case? Yes, all right. So we are going back to 1973, mm. April, and 17-month-old Deirdre Kennedy, um, who was the youngest of two children. Her parents and the girls lived in Ipswich or near Ipswich in southeast Queensland. She was taken from her bed at some point in the night and that morning a little later that next morning there was a guy out walking in a nearby limestone park and he noticed something on the roof and he investigated and he found the roof of it was a public toilet oh the roof of a public toilet block and he thought it was a doll and then as he investigated further he he found little Deirdre yeah so that sparked a massive investigation as you can imagine she had been they say sexually assaulted before Mm. she was murdered she was strangled and the police did in fact charge Raymond John Carroll with her murder yes so you know ticks along he's brought to trial um sorry can I just and I don't want to be gratuitous about this but I think by, because of what later happens, it's the evidence of why they thought she was sexually assaulted, I think, is is important because it comes up again at the trial. Well, the way she had been dressed mm. um, and there was a pubic hair found on her body. Yeah. So. And also bite marks. Oh, yes, the bite marks on her thigh. Yes. Yes, sorry, of course. Yes. Um, yes, all very cr- crucial. Mm parts of the prosecution case Mm. so he was he was brought to trial he pleaded not guilty he gave evidence in his own defense and categorically stated that he had not done it but the jury convicted him sorry can i just jump in there wasn't the trial sometime later wasn't it in the 80s didn't they so 73 is the didri kennedy's found yes he was eventually convicted in 85 there was some initial investigations into someone else but pretty quickly they were led to Carol and he was charged yes um, so he was convicted he appealed that conviction and the court of appeal agreed with the defense and felt that there wasn't sufficient evidence for a jury to have convicted beyond reasonable doubt so the conviction was quashed which means it was removed he was no longer guilty of that charge but he was acquitted so uh, the appeal courts can quash a conviction and then order a retrial if they feel that Mm. you there's the sufficient evidence that maybe another jury should have a look at it but uh, in this case the queensland court of criminal appeal they um quashed it and uh acquitted him so he was then 
free. Yes, because on that on that ground of appeal, if you're saying that there wasn't sufficient evidence, there's no point having a retrial. Yes. Because no jury would be is able – the, the yes. question is that no jury would have been able to be satisfied beyond reasonable doubt. Yes. And that was what they felt. So as a defence lawyer, that is a – you know, that kind of a victory in a first appeal is – uh, that's you know that's the gold standard. That's what you're looking for. Yeah. And they don't happen that often. Uh, I mean, mostly you lose in your appeals, and if you don't lose, you're often getting a retrial, not a complete uh, vindication, as it were. My recollection, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, is one of the issues that the Court of Appeal, how Court of Criminal Appeal, has was the the um, scientific evidence that's led at the trial. Yeah, they they felt that it was inadmissible or it should have been ruled inadmissible. Yes, and that was evidence of, I'm going to say odontist, but some form of dental. O- odontology? On, o- okay, odontology, which apparently is some kind of dental specialty. And the evidence, for, I think there was three uh, expert witnesses who all give evidence uh, because they identify or purport to identify Carol from the bite marks on Deirdre Kennedy's thighs. Yes, and we'll get into it, but they were quite distinct. The bite marks revealed quite distinctive teeth Yes, that would have made that kind of bite mark. Yes. So they, there was some variance in their evidence, but they were all in agreement yes. that they matched Carol's teeth. Yes. I don't want to derail you, but do you want to sort of circle back around to that after you sort of we do an overview? Yeah, we'll come back to that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's acquitted of the murder and then um, some time passes. Prosecution are still convinced that he is guilty. They change their strategy and um, with the advances in forensic science, they are able to even more conclusively in prosecution's perspective establish that it was Carol who did in fact bite Deirdre's thigh and therefore um, their strategy was they were unable to retry him. Yeah, why the are they unable to retry? for Because of our laws on double jeopardy. Once you have been put on trial and been acquitted or convicted, you cannot be further tried on that charge. Mm. So, I mean, there's good reason for the double jeopardy laws. Do we want to talk about that now? We'll come to that too okay. then. Um, but so they couldn't retry him on murder, but they realised that if they had this proof that he had bitten her, that was um, pretty strong evidence that, in fact, he was the murderer. And he had said at his earlier trial, I didn't do it, under oath in the witness box. Mm. So they brought a trial against him for perjury, mm. for lying at his first trial. Obviously, to prove he lied at the first trial, they did have to, in essence, prove that he was the murderer. So yes. a lot of the same evidence was brought, all yep. of the odontology evidence was put forward, and a jury convicted him. Mm. He appealed, and the Court of Appeal quashed his conviction and issued an acquittal. Yes. Um, so he was no longer guilty of that charge, Uh and it went to the High Court. So the prosecution appealed from the decision in the Queensland Court. And yes. Went to the High Court. And the High Court said, look, in essence, what you've done is breach the rule on double jeopardy because mm. in order to prove the perjury, you had to prove the murder and you had already had your go at mm. proving that charge. Mm. And so they upheld the acquittal. Yes. So it was free to go. Yes. So no consequence, no conviction now no longer any charge yes. against carol yes and you can imagine that it caused quite an outrage in the community well uh, jessica hodge who suggested this said in her a message to me that she recalls uh, growing up out uh, in ipswich uh, and you know the the community feeling at the time and a petition that was uh, at the local news agent for people to sign um, in relation, I think, to, to further prosecuting him. So, yeah, obviously well, a lot and, of feeling in that local area. And Deirdre's mother, Faye, actually was a real advocate for changing the law so mm. that someone like Carol could not escape a second trial should there be fresh or new or, or updated evidence that came through. 
and that in fact happened. Mm. So the laws in relation to double jeopardy were eventually changed, 2007 I think, to say that if there was um, new or fresh fresh evidence, fresh and compelling evidence, Mm. then someone who had previously been tried and acquitted could be retried in relation to that charge. You know, logistical problems when the, the laws first came in, they weren't retrospective. So someone like Carol still wasn't caught by yeah. the reform. But then in 2014, more laws were changed and the exceptions to the double jeopardy rule were made retrospective. So people could, in fact, prosecute a historical matter. Yeah. But Carol was never retried. No. He's never been brought back no. in relation to those charges. And in fact, there have been one, maybe two cases where they have applied for a retrial on the basis of the exception to the double jeopardy laws, but they have not been granted. Mm. So since 2007, we've had the ability to retry in particular circumstances. Never happened. No. So that's an overview that, of, yes, uh, of the case. It was an excellent overview. Um, so much to unpack in all of that, though. Yes. And I think I think if we're going to talk about Carol, mm. I think we really do need to give sufficient attention to the facts of the case and the yes. investigation, yes. not just because it's an important case legally, but this is a case, this is one of those cases where whoever the murderer was has never been brought to justice. Mm. And so Deirdre's family still have questions Mm. and a lack of closure when it comes to the death of their little girl. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into a bit of detail about the case. Yes. So there were two daughters in the Kennedy family, five-year-old Stephanie and Deirdre, who was 17 months old at the time. Um, The parents were Faye and Barry. They were quite young. Um, You know, they lived in what was a, a small town called Ipswich, um, quite a quiet town. They had been probably uh, a little more country-based growing up, so, you know, they felt secure. They, you know, didn't feel that the, this was a dangerous area, so mm. they didn't always lock up, which is important. But, you know, they were happy that had a busy day. They got home uh, yeah. on this day, April the 13th. That's I mean, that is not... I mean, I was born in 72, so Deirdre Kennedy would be, I think, a little older than me if she was alive. And um, we never used to lock our house growing up. I mean, we lived in the outskirts of Brisbane, but... um, Well, I lived in Ipswich for the first 12 years of my life. Slightly different circumstances because my dad worked at a school, so we lived in the school. Yeah. But I can't remember having keys ever. Yeah. Or needing to, you know, know where a key was to get in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Barry had been recovering from knee surgery that had a really long drive from visiting relatives up north after a six week holiday. Um, so it was a slow day, you know, they were just at home, got the kids ready for bed. You know, they were pretty tired, not much protest. So they went to bed. Faye says that Deirdre was excited about some new pajamas she had that day. Um, and you know, she was happy to go to bed. Both the girls were put into bed. Faye and Barry didn't go to bed until about 10 o'clock before Faye went to bed. She checked on the girls. They were both sleeping. She pulled the aluminium sliding window and curtain shut before she tucked them in for the final time. And then she went to bed, went to sleep. So the following morning, five-year-old Stephanie wakes Faye and she said to Faye, wake up, Dee Dee's not in her bed. Mm. And Faye was like, well, that's strange because at 17 months, Faye, um, Deidre was walking a little bit, but she was still quite unsteady, yeah. you know, still Toddler. coming to grips with yeah. her, her skills. And Faye knew there was no way she could have pulled yeah. herself out of the cot, yeah. you know, so that was a bit of a worry. It was a little unit in a block with four units. So she checked the unit. She couldn't find Deirdre anywhere. It's a parent, parent's worst nightmare, I think, isn't it really? Oh, Waking I, up I can't even fathom. Mm. Yes. They, you know, searched outside. They knocked on the neighbor's door. 
Um, he said he hadn't seen Deidre. He hadn't heard anything out of the ordinary. So they were just searching, you know, futilely for Deidre, who was mm. gone. Um, meanwhile, at the nearby Limestone Park, which mm. was um, quite close to where they lived, 350 metres, Limestone Park, there was a fellow called Westy Mills who was out um, trotting one of his horses on the oval. Mm. There are a few other people around uh, and he noticed something on top of the toilet block at Limestone Park and he went to have a closer look. He thought maybe it was a doll. It was a little a little thing that he saw. Um, he pulled his horse to a stop and then as he got a closer look, he realised what he was seeing. Mm. He was in shock. He called for help. He climbed onto the toilet block, Westy yeah. did, yeah. and he retrieved the body of this little baby, found her wearing a pink pyjama top, which is what she'd been put to bed in, but her pyjama bottoms and her nappy had been removed and tossed aside, and in their place was women's underwear, uh. um, a pair of pale blue pants with um, suspenders and a silk half-slip skirt, which I think nobody wears anymore, no. but back then I think they were quite common. Mm. Um, and so obviously the police were summoned, both local police and police from Brisbane. So police said that the scene that morning was one that made even the most seasoned detective mm. recoil. Like yeah. it was unpleasant. Um, her face and neck were covered in bruises and there was bruising to her lower thigh, small abrasion near one of her eyes and on her upper lip, and it appeared that she had been sexually assaulted. Mm. The cause of death also appeared to be strangulation, mm. which later turned out to be true. While all of this is happening at Limestone Park, one of the neighbours of the Kennedy family had run down to the police station and reported that Deirdre was missing. Um, and as soon as the officer on duty heard that there was a baby missing in the area, he connected it to yep. the discovery yep. and they put it all together. Yeah. Barry had to identify Deirdre's body mm. and confirm that it was her. He couldn't even bring himself to tell Faye all of the detail no. that he'd noted. It was too horrific. They were consumed with guilt for what had happened, although she had checked and closed mm. the girl's window in the bedroom. She hadn't locked the door, which wasn't unusual for them. The front door. The front door, mm. that's right. It was a bit of a mystery as to exactly how Deirdre had been taken. Did someone come in through the sliding window, which Faye thought she had secured, but it was ajar in the morning. Um, but that would mean climbing over Stephanie, the mm. five-year-old, to get to Deirdre. Mm. If they'd come in through the house, there was no sign of that. And also, at 17 months, Deirdre's not, you know, a little two-month-old. She would have possibly woken if someone picked her up. Mm. If it wasn't someone she knew, would she have called out? You know, yeah. so there were all of these question marks yeah. over exactly how she had been taken. Yeah. But taken she had been. Mm. Obviously, um, they couldn't be sure, but the, the police first thought was she hadn't been strangled in the home that she'd mm -hmm. been abducted and then dealt with yeah. and then killed. Yeah. And so they were working on the premise that there was an intruder who had come in and taken the baby somewhere else and then dumped her yeah. at Limestone Park. Yeah. So they spoke to neighbours and there was a 73-year-old next door called Cecil Carroll, no relation mm. to Raymond Carroll, the accused. Yeah. There was just some shrubs that separated the two properties. He had uh, an eight-member family boarding with him, the Borscht family. Yeah. Um, but he mostly kept to himself in his bedroom at 71, I guess, or 73. That's yep. a lot of people to be yep. accommodating. Um, and so he told police that on the night of Friday, April the 13th, he hadn't been feeling well. He was resting in bed um, as he lit up a cigarette to make himself feel better As at around do. 10 p.m. Yeah. Um, he noticed something moving outside the bedroom window. He thought at first it was one of the, the tenants, one of the Borscht kids, but then he realised, in fact, it was a male mm. that he could see. Um, he thought maybe 
you know, late teens, early 20s, um, quite tall. He estimated, I'm not quite sure how I'd be no good at this, but yeah. estimated 172 centimetres, yeah. um, quite slender build and around 63 kilos. Um, he said that this guy had collar length hair. It was light brown to blonde in colour. So after watching for a few minutes, he realised that this prowler was actually taking things off the washing line, which uh, he thought was very odd. Mm. Um, so he got out of bed and he alerted Mr. Borscht, um, Arthur. He went outside, he checked the veranda, there was no one there. He told Cecil to go back to bed. And shortly afterwards, Arthur looked out of his window and um, noticed a male figure who appeared to be walking towards the nearby Amberley Air Force units next door. Right. We better explain what Amberley is. Yeah. So the Amberley Air Force Base was about a 15-minute drive from where the Kennedys lived, but there was housing, obviously, in this area for people who um, worked at the base. Yes. Yeah. So Arthur said it was difficult to see much during, you know, in the darkness, but he thought as well, appeared to be someone in their late teens, about that height, um, and he thought no more of it at that time. It was only the next day that he realised, in fact, there was clothing missing from the washing line. Yeah. Not at all a coincidence. It was a pair of blue pants. Yeah. um, The silk half slip. The, the clothing that had been found, found on Deirdre. Yes. So it did cause a lot of community interest and concern, mm. not just because of the concern for Deirdre, yeah. but also parents then were feeling worried about the safety of their children. Absolutely. I mean, it is the nightmare, a stranger abduction mm. coming in. Comes into your house, you don't wake up. That's right. We, I, you know, we all sort of think we'd wake up if someone came into the house, but... Literally the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. So... Everyone thought it was in everyone's best interest for the case to be solved quickly, the murderer brought to justice. Um, So the public came forward with any details they could to help. Uh, Investigators were working tirelessly, you know, running down any leads they Mm. could have, trying to work out a theory of how this could have happened and where they could search for other evidence and that sort of thing. They carried out extensive door knocks and over 3,500 local males voluntarily provided their fingerprints to eliminate themselves from the investigation. Now, I note that because that's pretty amazing. It is. So 73, so obviously no DNA. Really the best they've got in terms of forensic evidence is is fingerprints at that time. Yeah. But uh, did they find fingerprints on the scene? Are there fingerprints on the window? There were some unidentified fingerprints, um, which to date have never been identified. No. Okay. No and sex offenders and psychiatric patients were checked and ruled out. Um, nothing led to any kind of a breakthrough. Mm. So police were working on a theory that the killer either lived locally or was very familiar with the area. Yeah. Um, the it to- doesn't sound like an opportunistic crime. If you're in a, a block of units and you've got to go and look around to see if a window or a door's open... Minimum, it's possible, but it sounds more like somebody who knows the area, maybe watches watch the house, yes. knew there were kids there. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So I'm going to talk about the evidence now. Yes. So the police or the the medical examiner carried out an autopsy, yep. determined she died by strangulation, determined that the bruises on her face and neck had been made by a human hand. Okay. Um, there was no semen or any other bodily fluids yep. detected. But the killer had left behind this single pubic hair and some hair-like fibres. Mm-hmm. Um, and although DNA profiling didn't exist back then, as you just noted, there was one other clue. And that was um, on Deirdre's left thigh, just mm. above her knee, there were two small curved bruises about one and a half centimetres long that were deemed to be a bite mark, a yes. human bite mark. yes. So that bite hadn't broken the skin, but it had left very clear imprints on Deirdre's thigh. So there was some force behind it. Yeah, a bruise. It was a bruise, yeah. Yeah. Based on the irregular pattern of the bruises, they determined that the killer had likely had a protruding overbite. So his teeth, top teeth stuck out. Yeah. And it also indicated there was a slight deformity to the killer's two front teeth Mm. um, as though the the teeth might have been chipped or broken. Mm. Obviously, in any case like this, 
family will be considered by police. Normal part of the investigation either to rule them in or rule them out. So um, they considered Deirdre's father, Barry. Now, as I said, he had had a knee injury. Um, It was difficult for him to get around at that time. Uh, So the police were not convinced that it was him, but yep. they were very thorough and they um, compared his teeth to the bite marks uh, and they didn't match. Mm. So they ruled him out as a suspect. Sure. He had a cousin called Keith Kennedy. He lived about 40 kilometres away. Barry and Keith were quite good friends. Mm. Barry didn't think that his cousin would be the likely suspect, but the police did consider him yep. in their investigation Three years earlier, Keith had been accused of biting a Mm three-year-old on the vagina. Okay. So that was a pretty big red flag in Mm. an investigation like this. Um, That's a pretty big red flag anywhere, anytime. Well, sorry, yes, of course. um, But, yeah, interesting for an investigative point of view. Not sure how um, admissible it is, but... Well, he was found not guilty by reason of unsound mind. Okay. So he was brought to trial... And he was found not guilty on that basis, reasons of insanity. Mm. Um, but obviously the family were all very conscious of this charge and mm. it was a horrible thing to have happened in that family. Mm. They were mortified, upset, all of that sort of thing. And so police thought he looked like um, a likely person of interest. Yeah. He knew the family, you know, he had this history. Yeah. And so they compared his bite mark to the one found on yeah. Deirdre, yeah. they said he did have a significant gap in his front teeth, which was a, an oddity, which yeah. was something they'd noted, but there was no match to the bite mark itself. Sure. There was also no match for the fingerprints found to Keith. Yes. So there was no link there. So he was Living left 40 kilometres away, I think is also probably helpful. Yeah. Uh, I think he also may have matched the description that had been given by... I, I find the description slightly problematic. I mean, it's night time and you're giving the hair colour. I, I really would be a bit sceptical about that. I mean, height, again, you can you could, you could estimate height off a silhouette if you see somebody standing up. If they're crouching in a bush, I mean... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and you can estimate age off a silhouette too, but I mean, really, how accurate is it? So, I, I, I you know, useful. I, I think that it's it's potentially problematic. That's what I would do if I'm a defence lawyer, and well, and all of this police matching bite mark stuff is just, I mean, as we know, because it was all thrown out. But well, but also, I mean, if I'm giving you a little preview, mm. Carol did not match that description because at there the time he was in the army, he definitely did not have. Short hair. <laughs> um, he definitely did, did not have, have the collar length hair. Yeah. yeah and what about his height? Let's assume the height difference. was accurate. There was a difference there as well. Okay. Um, and uh, the build, because it was a slender build, I think you said. Well, I think at the time the, there was some similarities because he would have been the right age group. Yeah. Uh, but the hair's a big one, I think. Yeah. But obviously the police ended up thinking that description was not as crucial to the case. Yeah. You know. So anyway. What about opportunity? That's always a big one. I know. Uh, and that was a big problem with Carol. So right. can we come to that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. You get to it when you – I don't want to interrupt. Okay. I just want to know if you know why it took so long to come to trial. It was almost 10 years. Okay. Because – so part of it was this. Oh, I don't know why it took almost 10 years. But so we're now into the next year. Yes. So some time has passed. Um, we're into 1974. Yeah. There hasn't been progress. But then – Oh, they, they did have a coronial inquest. Yes. Um, but nothing significant was found in yes. that. Okay, so we've really gone ahead. We're now we're in 1982. Right. So February 1982. Yes. At the Amberley Air Force Base, they woke up in the morning and there has been an intruder. Yes. Someone has broken into um, the female housing block. And they'd scaled up a drain pipe, broken in via an open window. There were man's boot prints on the wall. Um, They entered one of the women's dorm rooms. Yes. um, 
one of the women in that room had a photograph of herself that had been taken. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was wearing apparently revealing clothing. I don't know in 74 what that amounted to or 82 even. But the prowler apparently took the photos, got some pairs of women's underwear and their Air Force uniforms and then took himself down to the laundry room Mm. in the building. There he slashed the crutches out of the underwear. He cut holes from the nipple sections of the bras, Mm. did the same thing to the uniforms um, before debasing the photograph and leaving. Right. Okay. So scary as anything to have this prowler there. Luckily, the security guards who'd been on that night before had noticed a car parked in an area that it shouldn't have been. They took down the number plate, yeah, and that number plate took them to Raymond John Carroll. Right. So he was um, an electrical fitter at the time. Um, he lived on the base yes. with his wife and his two young daughters. He had been a member of the Air Force yes. since he was 17. And so they came and questioned him about why his car had been parked near yes. the women's quarters. And he said, no, it wasn't my car. You're mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh He said there'd been a function at the golf club earlier that night. He'd been parked there for that, but he'd been home well and truly before midnight. His wife backed that up, said that Carol had gotten home at about 11.30 and hadn't left again. The prowler had left fingerprints um, on the photographs Ah, found in the laundry room. So Mm -hmm. despite these denials, they did a check and lo and behold, Carol's fingerprints matched those found at the scene of this second crime. Yes. I say second crime, the second crime we're talking about. Yes. So he said no idea how the prince had ended up on that photo. He maintained he had nothing to do with the break and enter. He had no criminal record. Mm -hmm. It seemed strange that this seemingly respectable married man would commit this type of crime. But, you know, in this case, the fingerprint evidence was fairly conclusive. Mm. Mm. So um, the person running this investigation was from the army, Cor- Corporal John Rally. Okay, so it's a it's on uh, an offence that occurs on a military base by the accusers of military personnel. So it goes through the military courts, does it? Well, no, no. Okay. So maybe the investigation was a. Was, I don't. I don't actually, sorry, I shouldn't ask. This. I don't actually know <laughs> that. Tricky but he questions. was running the investigation. Yep. And it just so happened that during the course of the investigation, Carol had told Raleigh or Rayleigh that before he joined the Air Force in 1973, Mm. he'd lived with his mother in Ipswich. Mm -hmm. His home was on Quarry Lane, which was just around the corner from where the Kennedys lived, uh, and Limestone Park. And Rayleigh was familiar with the unsolved case of Deirdre Kennedy. And so this connection together with the use of women's clothing and underwear, the sexual tones got him thinking. Um, He said even though nine years had passed since Deirdre Kennedy had been murdered, he had never forgotten that case. Um, And so he also noticed that Raymond Carroll had a protruding overbite. Mm. He felt that was fairly significant Mm. And he became pretty certain that Raymond Carroll was the murderer of Deirdre Kennedy. Mm. He got into touch with an old colleague of his from the police who was Detective Sergeant John Reynolds. Mm -hmm. Now, Reynolds had worked on the Kennedy case, the first in all the investigation, right from the start. Um, He also was still unable to let this one go. It was, you know one that really stayed in his mind. So when Rayleigh told him that Raymond Carroll was someone he thought could potentially be involved, um, he immediately got on board with considering this, you know, potential Mm. lead and investigating it further. So he was given permission to reopen the case into Deirdre Kennedy. When he did that, he found out that unfortunately, a lot of the evidence in the Kennedy case had been lost. So wow. in 1974, there were massive floods. Floods in southeast Queensland. And right. the police storage basement had been flooded and a lot of the evidence mm. in relation to the Kennedy case had been lost. So the mm. pubic hair um, mm. being one of them. 
I, I've had some limited experience at hair analysis and it's not particularly accurate. So Even now? Even now. Really? If, if, there's, if the root of the hair is there, they can, oh, yeah. do, okay. they can do DNA testing and stuff now. Back well, they in those didn't days, mention a root of the pubic no, hair or not, I guess, back then they didn't know. No, and I don't think it would have helped them anyway. But uh, it seems to be you just look at one hair and look at the other and say, yeah, they match, but I mean, mm. uh, yeah. So, so yeah, that evidence, evidence never, was lost, Yeah, okay. as was all of the information that they had done when they canvassed. So all, all, all of, of the witnesses. That's right. Oh, that's, Any males yeah. who lived in the area at the time, yeah. whether they'd been spoken to, what had been said. So all mm. of that was lost. But the the bite mark evidence was preserved. Yes. When you say the bite mark evidence, you mean the photographs of the leg of Deirdre Kennedy that had the marks on it. Yes. I think that becomes relevant later when the um, at, well, the, uh, at the subsequent trial and appeal. What? What, what exactly are these experts looking at? Are oh, they looking yes. at the leg or are they looking at photographs? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. In 73, Raymond Carroll had been 17. Um, he lived on Quarry Lane with yeah. his family. Their home was 600 metres yeah. from the Kennedys' unit, 700 metres from the toilet block yeah. in Limestone Park. So very small radius within which yes. the crime would have been committed. Yes. Very doable. Yes. Well, he would have known the area, presumably, presumably seen the kids. Yes, yeah, that's right. Familiar um, with the whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. So we're now in 1983, mm-hmm. late 1983. These investigators in the Kennedy case now go to speak to Carol for the first time in relation to this murder. Yes. They were very upfront and explained to him why they were speaking to him. Yeah. And he said, I wasn't even in Queensland at that time. I was um, doing basic recruitment training in South Australia and it was a 10-week course that went from February 9 until April 19. And Deirdre was murdered on April 13. Um, He said after the training, he travelled to Wagga Wagga Air Force Base. And at no time in that period did he return to Ipswich. Yeah. He was adamant. It wasn't him. He had nothing to hide. He was being honest. He agreed to provide his fingerprints, Mm -hmm. hair samples, and a plaster cast of his teeth. Mm -hmm. So he provided all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, a forensic expert deemed that Carol's hair was of similar colour and texture. There you go. So Pretty useless. Yes, you don't like that. <laughs> no. Well, um, I mean, that, you know, yeah. the same as well, several and, million and there people was, living in Australia at the time. There yeah. was no DNA still. So, yeah, there's no So, yet. nothing to connect. Yeah. The fingerprints that they found at the flat and at Limestone Park, they were not a match mm. for Carol. Um, but, you know, they didn't place too much concern on that fact because... It was a public place, mm. the the park, so the fingerprints could have been from absolutely anyone. Mm. Same with the fingerprints at the flat. There wasn't a clear point of entry. There wasn't mm. any way to really be sure which fingerprints in that unit would have been relevant. Yeah. yeah. But his alibi posed a bigger problem, mm-hmm. the fact that he was on this training course. Yes. Now, they looked and Air Force Records confirmed, yes, he was on that training course, Um to leave, you would need special permission yeah. uh, for, you know, particular special circumstances. Um, and typically that would be for something like a family emergency. Yeah. There was no record of him requesting any leave at that time. So there was no reason to think he hadn't been there for the full 10 weeks. But there had been a formal graduation photo taken at the conclusion of the course. And Carol was not in that. Not in and there was a final march of all of the graduates and there was uncertainty as to whether he'd taken place in that mm. march. Mm-hmm. So they tried to find the other recruits who had graduated with him to see what they could remember. Um, it was quite difficult. Over 10 years had passed mm. since that training and memories were hazy. Yeah. No one could recall anything specific about Carol. Someone thought maybe someone had left for a family emergency but didn't know for sure or who mm. it was. Um, so you probably did say, but just remind me, where, where is this 10-week camp taking place? South Australia. Okay, so a long way away a long from way away. Queensland. Yeah. Someone thought they remembered helping a recruit pack up their gear early uh, and remembered that this person had 
um, teeth that jutted out uh, and that his name was Raymond Carroll. <laughs> I probably would have led with that fact. Yeah. That would have been more um, easy to identify him. Yep, but, okay. but again, there was no Air Force record that said he'd been granted leave. Yes. And, you know, they would be meticulous, you would think, with their Presumably. grants of leave and knowing where their recruits are. Marking the role every day. I don't know. Yeah. Another big thing is what you just said. They were, they were 2,000 kilometres mm. away. So if he'd been granted leave towards the end, which is what maybe the memory of the other recruits was, uh, how would he have gotten there apart from flying to be there in time to take Deirdre? Yes. And there were no flight records because they're disposed after seven years. Yeah. So there was no way to, to prove or establish or check yeah. whether yeah. he had flown at that time or not. The other problem was he didn't really match the description. description. So that was something else. Um, he was taller, but, you know, I think it was the hair that was the big issue because army recruits had the short hair yes. and they definitely said longer yes. hair. So they thought... He was guilty. Yes. But they didn't think it was enough to convince a jury. No. Which is fair. Yes. They kept investigating. Yes. So they ended up speaking to Carol's first wife. And um, she and Carol had had uh, a daughter. And it wasn't a great marriage. Pretty quickly, she thought he was cheating on her mm -hmm. um, and they divorced. And so they spoke to her and she said that when their daughter was a baby, there had been four or five occasions when Carol had taken her into the bedroom to change her nappy and the baby would start screaming and she would go to try and see what was wrong with the baby and he wouldn't let her into the door. Um, and he said it was all fine. And she would then examine her baby afterwards and she saw bruising on her upper thighs. Uh, she believed them, she told investigators, to be bite marks. And she said that that was one of the reasons she did, in fact, divorce him. So this is yeah. massive. Okay. Well, when you say massive, okay, so we, in a legal sense, in a, whether a jury's going to hear that evidence, you know, that is... is is information about the behaviour of a person that isn't, in relation to the actual offence. So it's a similar fact evidence case. And, and I mean, as you know, I don't need to tell you the really strict rules around, you know, letting that evidence in because it is so, um, has a, such a huge potential to prejudice a jury. Juries who are not lawyers and sit there and hear, well, he used to bite his own daughter. There's a dead body of a young girl with bite marks on the leg. Ergo, it must be him. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> it must be him. Must be him. I'm I'm convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. So courts are very strict in. I know, but so when I say massive, I guess for the investigators, this was confirmation that they were on the right track. <laughs> well, they they found uh, information that supported their hypothesis. So of course, that you know, I mean, How... there, there was evidence which you point out which doesn't support their hypothesis, which yes, they continue but to investigate regardless. Does. There's a lot sure. that does. Well, I don't know about a lot. There's some that does. I'd say a lot. And so they continue their investigation despite evidence against it. And then when they get evidence that supports it, they further continue their investigation. So, um, Just to add to that. Yes. Apparently, when he had his baby, yes. which was uh, like 78 or 79, I think. Yes. He wanted to call that baby Deirdre. Wow. Okay. Mm. Interesting. I evidence. Yeah. Um, I don't know if a jury ever heard that. I'm not sure they should. All have. right. So yes, admittedly, not the strongest case at this point against him. But let's get to the odontology. Okay. So they did a plaster cast of his teeth. Yes. And it was compared by a forensic dental expert. Yes. To the dental impression photos of the bruising on. Deirdre's thigh. Yes. And the positioning of the bruises lined up with his unique overbite. So this expert says, yes. Was fitting um, like the right size for yes. what he would have been then yes. as a older teenager. Yes. The shape of the bruises indicated that the killer's front teeth were slightly deformed and the plaster cast of Carol's teeth showed no such deformity. So they were like, oh. Okay, so what do we do with that? Well, they went back and they found 
Carol's earlier dental records from the Air Force and his upper teeth had undergone dental work right. since he joined the Army. So the 1973 records at the yep. time he was recruited did in fact show that same kind of yes. deformity. Yeah, but do you see the problem? And this, I see this all the time. Do you see the problem with how they are going about forming their opinion? They, uh, it's, it's not. If you look at the scientific method, it is just absolutely not at all. We so have it's, to think here are some time. photos. Here are some. The scientific method was developed in like the 1600s. Like here are the here are the photographs. Here is a set of you know a plaster cast of somebody's teeth. Let's assume they just say, "Can you say if that matches that?" Let's assume that's all they say. That's still a problematic. Okay, but what, I'm sure what they do say, the police go, we think this guy did it. Can you tell us if those teeth match those? So there's, there is a, a, already a confirmation bias in the scientists who are sitting there looking at these two things. But what they, they should do is take 10 sets of teeth, plaster cast of 10 sets of teeth, say there's a photograph, which set do you think matches that? And then, you know, exactly okay, like yes, you're doing like it. like a photo board. Exactly. But it's not like they were laser like they they were open to other avenues of investigation they compared well, other people's bite marks did they barry's keith's so they had three they had here are three suspects which they one were is following it? leads they can't just magic leads out of nowhere so they were following evidence yeah so but that when- suggested a potential suspect aren't they doing their job by then going to speak to the wife finding out that he has a proclivity to bite. Yeah, then I, I appreciate, yep, that's that's all great investigation. My point is when you go to an expert, I mean, you, you mentioned photo boards, we should explain that for people. So I'm sure everybody knows, but, you know, so the police have a suspect that, who they think it is. They have a witness who has witnessed whatever the crime is. They then take a picture, take, they get 10 photographs of a similar sort of, similar to the person they think it is put them on a photo board, hand it to the witness and just say, you know, make a mark next to the person you think it is and they make a mark and against that. If it's if it's a mark against the, well, I mean, even if it isn't, it tends to be evidence in the trial. But so that they are, they are choosing from people who are not suspects and people who are suspects. Yes. But in this case, they're choosing from three people who are all potential suspects. One is just more of a suspect okay. than the other all two. Right. You know, so what they should have done and they, and they shouldn't have – so when you, we, with your witness, your eyewitness, you don't say, we think it's this guy, but just tell it. You know, you just go, here is some 10 photos, yes, just pick one. I know. So they should have I gone, here are 10 that. dental, you know, casts. You pick the one you think it is. That okay, would have so been a much Maybe that more... would have been a much better way. You know what I just kept thinking of then? Did you what? ever watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking of the um, the lineup oh, where the he singing. sings. <laughs> yeah, that's a fantastic one. Um, anyway. Totally irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, but, yes, so maybe there was a better way to do it. Maybe. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, this forensic dental expert yes. said it was a match. Absolutely. In fact, three of them did. And then the Court of Appeal did pretty much what I just did and said this should never have gone in front of a jury. All right. Um, but it was even worse than that because in the cross-examination, one of the experts agreed that, that matching teeth to bite marks is unreliable. Now? No, at the trial. Unreliable. Said it in front of the jury. I mean, this is a problem. But, the jury hear that and then they... Okay, but I, I still feel like with expert evidence, defence and prosecution often have expert evidence saying opposite things. Well, my, well, my experience is defence never have experts because they don't have any money to and you just have to... They do just so. sort of attack the... Oh, in privately funded stuff. Legal aid is very hard oh, no, to get not legal aid. Uh, but I think you can. I think you have to accept. Well, that doesn't help my side. But I think you have to accept that defence, for example, will find an expert who says what they want them to say. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that. So the you know, back in the seventies, probably, and this idea of a, a gun for hire, you just find the expert to say what you want. Well, I think it was very much a feature of of litigation back in the seventies, eighties, you know, but nineties even. But with the reforms that come in in the civil procedure and um, you know the the and particularly now the courts are very alive to that and and all of the rules are set around trying to find a joint expert or you know they make experts now sign a a um, you know a declaration saying they understand that their duty is to the court not to the party who's employed them. them and paying them okay um, well, so that's reassuring 
Oh, absolutely it is. Um, my, my issue in criminal law is the, is the idea that sort of the prosecution like to try and break new scientific ground. You know, it's that they don't go, here's a tried and tested, you know, method of scientific, you know, uh, analysis like fingerprints. They go, oh, geez, we're really struggling with this case. Let's think outside the box here, people, and get in some dentist to check these bite marks out. You know, I, I really object well, to that. Why though? Like because if that's if that's progress in forensic at the expense of sending an innocent person to jail. And I mean there has been so so um matching somebody from their gait, from the way they walk, was something that was done in this country for years until the High Court, after years, said this is absolute pseudoscience and threw it out. But sh- surely when fingerprint evidence came in, for example, mm. there would have been similar resistance to that kind of evidence. Like if we have advances due to scientific advances that can be used in a criminal context, sure, maybe at the start it's untested, it's new and possibly not an exact science from the get-go, but why would we not use that? Because it doesn't have to be untested. So the, the, when they actually did a proper scientific analysis of fingerprint evidence, it was like 70 years after they had actually started using it in courts. And they realised that the way they uh, analysed fingerprints was not scientific at all. It was really just somebody who said they're an expert looking at two pictures and going, I think that matches. Okay, but it needed that time. Yeah, but after 70, they should have done that day one. Okay. You know, it's, it's not like we don't know how to test these things. We but do. I also don't think we're making errors like that. Uh, we are all the time because there's new technologies all the time. You know, this. I mean, I'm I in think the, I'm just in... because it's new or different doesn't mean we shouldn't be utilising it in an investigation. In an investigation, that's fine. If you want to put it before a jury, it needs to satisfy the legal test, and 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 to do that, it properly should be should be, you know, rigorously tested. But then there's no point using it in an investigation if you can't use the evidence. Well, get rigorously tested. I mean, the government who is who funds so what, the police and the investigators. You, what would you say would be rigorous testing? They had multiple forensic dental experts look at this. They didn't just rely on one person. Sure, but I mean, as I pointed out, the problems just with the way they went about it in terms of that particular case, but I would be interested to know if there was any kind of proper forensic testing where they got, you know, so, you know, to properly test it, what you need to do is you need to get a piece of plasticine, you need to get Joe Bloggs to bite it, you need to then give that to somebody, plus Joe Bloggs's, you know, dental um, plaster cast of your teeth and 10 other people's, and you need to see if they can pick that it's Joe Bloggs. And then you need to do that 50 more times with 50 more samples and 50 more people and get an idea of how accurate these things are. And as soon as you've done that, then it's rigorously tested. I mean, that's what they do. I mean, fingerprints now are much better than they were in terms of their analysis and ability to um, accurately identify people. But for many, many, many years in courts, they weren't. I mean, and I mean. I, okay. I just, I find it difficult that. The evidence is that he had the distinctive bite mark that aligned with the bruise. Yeah, but they, so there's the problem right there. The experts said it aligned with the bruise. Okay. And we find out that the experts are potentially wrong. And, and they're, but they're not. Well, All right. So that it's, <laughs> and that's the, pro, that, that's, that's the, the problem I have is as soon as you get to that point, it's like, oh, well, it'll, he has a distinctive bite mark. Okay, great. I mean, presumably we all do because we've all, all our teeth right. are different. Not everyone's teeth would have matched. Yeah. But, I mean, one of the other problems, and, and again, this is one of the experts admitted this, is that they were working from photographs of bruises. You know, it wasn't but a they, wound. They it was just a bruise. They are forensic dental experts. So presumably well, they have had experience in not just, you know, the flesh itself, but also photos and diagrams and all of that sort of thing. I, I don't think they were. I mean, I, I, I went to school with one of the dentist's sons and he was just a an odontal person, whatever that dentist is called. You know, he wasn't somebody who worked with the police. He was just an expert in his field and fixed, you know, well, when you say just an then, expert in his field. Yeah, and then he's, but he's not a forensic expert in that in, 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 he's not working with the police you know, and he's doing this stuff all the time. Not mm. that that would help either because that's potentially reinforcing your mistakes. All so. right. 
Um, okay, so anyway, they charged him. They did. And they brought him to trial. Yes. They were not allowed to give evidence about his previous charges at yes. the female dorm. Yes. So that was not given to the jury. Yes. And because, what was the reason? Well, because it would be prejudicial. Yeah, so they, they obviously tried to get it yeah, in they and, wanted and the it, similar yeah. fact evidence rules. The yeah, the, ju- the, the judge, judge ruled, ruled inadmissible. Inadmissible. Yeah. So they were really just looking at um, the bite marks, the propensity for... So the bite mark on the daughter, on his own daughter? No, that... the bite mark on Deirdre Kennedy. Yes. But his propensity for biting children. Which from his from own daughter? From the ex-wife, yeah. Yes, okay. Uh, so. And... The dodgy alibi, they called it dodgy alibi. Again, that's a bit rough, but. Well, um, I didn't say the word dodgy. I'm no, sure. That. So they were up front uh, with that evidence, but the defense said just circumstantial. Um, Very circumstantial. Yes. The records had been lost, you know, all of that sort of thing. He hopped in the stand and said he had not committed this offence. Mm. They said he didn't match the witness description. Mm. You know, so there was a lot of criticism of the evidence by defence, as mm. you would expect. Mm. Um, in relation to the dental experts, known as forensic odontologists, now I've got it wrong, odontologists, <laughs> they said that the shapes of bruise marks can alter if the body's placed in a different position. The marks were near the knee. Their shapes might have been affected by changes in tensions of the skin. Mm. But all of their methods differed in terms of their comparison and analysis. Um, But they all arrived, all three of them arrived at the same conclusion. Yes. That he had made the bite marks. So to me, that suggests a level of rigor. There is discussion of... Oh, you know, evidence of clear understanding of how a bite mark presents and can be impacted and the things to look for and, you know, all of that stuff that sure. I would have no idea about. No, sure. Well, right. I mean, sorry, it seems self-evident once somebody explains it to you. If you bite somebody above their knee while their knee is bent, it'll potentially look different if their knee is not bent. But taking all of that into account, you know, like it was not just a cursory, oh, yeah, they match. Sure, I never suggested it was cursory, but I did suggest that the it was not a scientifically, you know, sensible way to go about the analysis. And they, as I say, they could have all started with a confirmation bias. So the fact they all end up with the same idea is like, well, mm. surprise, surprise. All right. So anyway, he was convicted. Convicted. We they, sorry. Tell you, they deliberated. The jury deliberated. Yes, how long? For four hours. Okay. How long? You didn't know how long the trial was. Uh, I don't know. Probably, yeah, I, I guess, about a week. It's a um, you know, when they come back in and they say, how do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? And the jury said guilty. And they asked Carol if he had anything to say. And he said, I am not guilty. Yeah, always maintains his innocence. Yep. Uh, and he got life imprisonment immediately with hard labour. Oh, they had hard labour back then. Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Um, now, uh, that... It was an absolutely masterful um, exposition <laughs> of the facts of the case. I did not expect you to go into that much detail, but it's been fantastic. But I, maybe we need to do a second episode. So we've got where Carol's convicted and obviously, spoiler alert, we've been talking about who's <laughs> acquitted on appeal. But what then subsequently happens in the in the, in the the um, um, perjury trial and the or the subsequent investigation perjury trial, I think that's worthy of a second episode. Yeah, okay, because there was... Later evidence, then mm. that trial, and then the consequences of yes. the second acquittal. Yeah, and it's as you pointed out at the start. This is the the effects of this are still being felt today. So it's a little bit of a cliffhanger, isn't it? I don't think so. I think everyone knows how it ends. Well, <laughs> we sort of know, said we sort of said how we're it not ended. finishing the story. Today. No, I know, I know, yeah. but um, but more to come. Absolutely, more to, more come, to come, isn't there? And I just think, yes, I probably could have short. No, why? I thought it was fantastic. And I think it's so important yeah. to really have an understanding of I completely agree. Yeah. So when we talk later about the perjury trial, people who've listened to this episode will know exactly what we're talking about in terms yes. of what happens at the original trial yes. and how they tried to have him well they they convinced a jury to convict him. Yes. Yeah. All right, well, until next oh, week. I can hardly wait. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks Lizzie. Joe. Bye. Thanks for tuning into this episode. 
You can find links to the cases that we discussed in the description. You can also find a link to Guardian Criminal Law, and a big shout out to them for making this podcast possible. The majority of criminal cases involve people, normal people, people like you, people like me, who find themselves in an unusual set of circumstances that would not usually occur in their life. My name's Mark Savick, and I'm here to assist you with your criminal matter. I look forward to hearing from you and being of assistance to you. If you're interested in clips, you can look at them on Instagram and TikTok. Just search for Justice Matters Pod. See you next episode.